You're listening to Saber and Sage Unplugged, and I'm your host, Stephanie Renee. Each season, I'll be hooking up with a diverse group of folks that are unplugging and giving an unfiltered glimpse into their lives, creative process, and dropping that sage advice to carry us through life. For episode three, I'm hanging out with Chef 2, David Fu, and we're talking about his journey of growing up in the Bay Area, his appreciation and love for food and family, his experience on Bravo's Top Chef, and so much more. As a first-generation Vietnamese American, food justice comes naturally to Chef 2, who finds opportunities to use the medium of food as a vessel for meaningful work, from cooking with incarcerated men in San Quentin, to his role as co-executive producer for First Kitchen Media that involves storytelling and speaking about diversity and inclusivity, to being a community ambassador in Oakland, working with Asian Health Services and the Oakland Asian Cultural Center. Y'all, I felt like I was talking to the homie during this conversation, and we went well beyond the hour that I've posted. Two is such a down-to-earth person. He's full of wisdom, and he's a bomb chef. These are just a few of the things that make Two such a dope human. Listen in. One of the things that I ask folks all the time is, how did your food journey begin? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think uh, most chefs, if you ask most chefs, they'll have these beautiful stories of them cooking with their grandmother, um, you know, plump tomatoes in the yard, you know, chasing the chicken hens and whatnot. And, you know, I, I just don't have that sort of roots and backgrounds. And for me to just keep it real, um, both maternal and paternal grandparents, uh, I'm Vietnamese American, first generation, um, raised in Oakland. And um, in terms of like my family lineage, it's been sort of, uh, um, we've kind of been torn apart because of war. My parents have been through two wars, uh, the Cambodian Vietnamese war and the American and Viet- uh, Vietnam war all in a decade's time. So for me to kind of reach back and talk about deeper uh, generational grassroots of like family food and food memories. It's, it's kind of hard for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that I did grow up in Oakland and my parents were refugees, like we, we really came from nothing. And the meals that I've had in my both adolescent years and my youth was that if I can remember one thing, my mom would make um, chicken soup. She would get chicken bones from the local um, a market, whether it's a market or a butcher shop, back in the 90s, they didn't sell chicken bones. You can get them for free because the butchers would just get rid of it. Uh-huh. There's no interest to buy it or sell it because no one would buy it. Um, so my mom would bring home the chicken bones and we would make soup with it. So it's just bones, no meat, just a carcass. And we make soup and then like have rice with it. I think if anything, my food story in that regard is more similar to... Um, Charlie in the chocolate factory with cabbage soup <laughs> opposed to some fine dining chef you would see on top chef right <laughs> right um so I think uh in addition to that um the community that I existed in um it was a food desert it, we I existed in a food insecure community meaning that 
opposed to grocery markets and farmer markets, if you will, we have liquor stores. Mm -hmm. So my association with produce like orange, tomato, um, grape, mint, those are, I associate that in my youth with uh, soda pop flavors or candies. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because at the liquor stores, they had junk food or they had liquor. <laughs> that was one of the two. And that's what it served. That's what served, was served in my community. Um, and if there was anything fresh, um, you know, my mom was able to grow just a few herbs in her Oakland backyard, if you will. And we lived in an apartment complex. So there wasn't like a luxury Calvin Klein manicured garden for us to run through. <laughs> um, and I think given that sort of context, um, I think with, with, with sort of my journey with food, that created a food obsession for me because I lacked food variety, you know? Um, and as I got to get older and I learned how to cook, you know, I was able to cook with things in the household, like rice, which is, I think almost every household would have, especially yeah. Asian or instant ramen. Every Oakland family, <laughs> at least that I know of, had instant ramen, no matter what color you were, mm -hmm. um, or a couple of noodles. Um, and then I think, I think just being able to cook for myself and my mom cooking when she was able to cook. I think being in that sort of environment, um, that was the only sort of time or place where I felt good, you know, I, like I had a really, mm. I wouldn't say the most difficult or fucked up childhood. I, I think if anything, my surroundings were really negative. Mm. Um, and I think that's for most people who grew up in that era, in that neighborhood could sort of resonate with. Yeah. Um, so I don't think I'm a special circumstance by any means. And I'm not trying to be biggie, trying to paint a roads to riches sort of like uh, narrative. But I think given that sort of context, um, it really, really fed into uh, my obsession with food um, as I started to, to become an adult. And I think for some rhyme or reason, coming out of high school, I wanted to go to culinary school. And I think the journey kind of sparked and set off from there. Right on. Now, I, I know you mentioned, uh, first of all, you mentioned ramen. And I immediately started thinking, the instant ramen, I immediately started thinking about top ramen. And I'm like, I haven't had that in so long. Now you're making me want some. <laughs> And I'm, I'm telling you, there's so many different ways you can put, you put some hot sauce in it, you put some eggs in there, yeah. you can not put as much water and then like do a stir fry instant ramen. Yeah, um, I mean, all the ways, all the ways. All the ways. I, mean, I was like, man, you may, I, I kind of want to run to the store. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't, um, you can um, you can um, uh, mix some green beans in there and then mm. the, and then add cream and bake it, make it into a casserole. You can uh, oh, try that. <laughs> Sounds good. You know, you can you can do a bunch of stuff. You, any leftover meats, you, you know, you stir fry it with some top ramen noodles. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hey, yeah, that brings me back. Now, you talk a little bit about the memory of taste. Can you tell yes. tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I think. Um, I think it, taste is speculative. So I think what is delicious and what is good, that's something that we inherit from our families, um, maternal, paternal, I think mostly from our matriarchs because I think that's sort of the classic family setup where um, I think at, at, at birth and at life, you taste from your mother, whether 
it's from her mouth or from her breast milk or either even in the womb um, through her um, through her placenta bag feeding you. Um, and there's theories that you know at uh, while in the womb, the first taste and sensation that you know is um, is acid, is is sourness. Um, super interesting, right? Um, but given that sort of context, um, memory of taste, I think, uh, for, let's start from birth moving on forward. I think that's sort of built around your lineage and heritage and your roots, um, specifically um, um, who you are, what ethnic background you're from, or what heritage, um, and I think uh, that is constructed through your immediate family structure. I think a great example would be, um, I'm Southeast Asian, first generation Vietnamese American. My parents are actually from an island, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I think the flavors that I kind of gravitate towards are flavors that derive from the ocean because we're from an island. Like I love that sort of meaty, savory, like mm -hmm. fish sort of flavor, butteriness uh -huh. of like oysters and like clams, that astringent sort of taste. So I really love that. Um, and even things that people don't like, like sardines and anchovies. I love that sort of fish fat sort of flavor. Other people mm -hmm. would say it's fishy. I'm like, oh, why would you eat fish if it doesn't taste like fish anymore? So that's sort of my counter argument to things like that. Right. And I think that for me, when I say memories of taste, um, I'm trying to look back and dial back on the things that I enjoyed in my youth. Uh, and the things that kind of hit me in my notes of, of when I've tasted it, it kind of um, took me away to another place. So, and I think as I get older, the term memory of taste becomes more emboldened and more, not just romanticized, but it, 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 it strikes my heart and my soul in a way where, um, where it's kind of hard to, for me to articulate yeah, um, I think for especially with people di with diaspora, uh, whether you're um, diaspora of African roots or diaspora of Caribbean, South American, Middle Eastern, Asian or European, I think that's a very common conversation that we can have that's re very relevant today as in 2021 where, you know, you're, you, you exist, say, in the United States and say if you're an immigrant or refugee or your roots are immigrant refugees of a person from another place and land, there's memories of what it tastes like back in your home. And that memory of taste or those memories of what things tasted like are connected to very deep rooted memories of family mm -hmm. um, and love because in nourishment, because those, those are not just symbiotic, but synonymous oftentimes. And I think when I say memory of taste, it's not just what you remember, what things taste like, but those memories that are attached to it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I think those can exist not just for diaspora, but I think for people who um, live in another state from their families, you know? Um, I have friends, I have a lot of friends, interestingly enough, um, that are Creole, you know, that exist in Oakland. And I think there were just maybe like two, three generations of migration um, that happened from, you know, that Creole region, New Orleans and whatnot, and migrated here to the West Coast in Oakland. And they, they too have memories of taste yeah. of what their grandmothers cooked and where they came from and all that stuff. So um, I, I think it's one of those things where that topic really gets me excited because it talks about 
what it is to be human, what it is to be alive. And um, that's sort of like a chopped up quote from James Baldwin that I really, really love. Cause he doesn't talk about not just the person of color experience or the black experience, but he talks about the human experience, yeah. which I think really gives us a periscope and a focus on you know, um, human, equal human equality and justices and social rights and stuff like that, so. Yeah. Definitely. I, I completely agree. Um, I mean, it's the same with smells too. And I mean, so with food, I associate with different smells and it takes me back to absolutely different places, different times, or even just <clears throat> like every time I, I think about green beans, I actually think about my granny and my um, grandmother and snapping peas. And even though um Californian because I have southern roots yes like you know snapping peas that even though it's country (laughs) that's like one of the things that's super I didn't pay too much attention to it Uh um when I had to do it but now it's like wow I would love to just be snapping peas right now I love that. That's such yeah. a beautiful story. And like, and like, I don't think, uh, I don't think you have to be a foodie in that regard. I, I had this same conversation with one of my um, favorite local local rappers uh, growing up. Do you know? Who, do you know who Mac Mall is? Yeah. Yeah. Who Mac Mall is? <laughs> yes, <I do. laughs> so, so uh, in addition to his music, he's in. You know, he he was a, you know, he was an original outlaw with Tupac. So he told me these beautiful you know, Tupac stories of like, of like, you know, I get goosebumps just thinking about it, but even, even, even Mac Maul had stories of similar to like yourself of shucking black eyed peas in Vallejo with his grandma. Mm. And then that's the thing. It, it just proves to me further that food affects everyone. You, you yeah. know, it's on food network. Right. So I think that's such a beautiful thing about food. So I know it just brings you together in so many different ways. I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I know you mentioned um, the the chicken soup. Now, yeah. was that one of your favorite dishes growing up? Or do you have another? Dish? I, I, I think so. I think, um, I think as a kid, I thought of food as more as nourishment. Mm. And, and as you get older, you start to have um, uh, your relationship with food becomes nostalgic. Mm-hmm. You know? So like when I make soup and there's bones or carcasses of the carcass itself, you know, when we make soup, there's bones in it. Like I have a habit of like picking at the carcass and then sucking all the meat off the bones. And it's just instinctual. And I, 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 I think it's, it's turned into a thing where initially it was, that's what we ate because it was a necessity. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older, it turned into something that I loved. As yeah. That is right. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I'm 36 now. I think um, looking back in my youth and the way we ate, I had a lot of shame in the way we ate because it was literally, we ate scraps. It was poor people food. Mm-hmm. And then I think after learning about you know, um, uh, the the Black South and how they how they ate and uh, how throughout the decades and centuries and not the decades but the centuries how they started to turn it into their own cuisine. Mm-hmm. Learning about 
and being proud of it and like it's the hottest thing now you know learning about jewish diaspora and sort of the same sentiment how they were like uh they turned scraps into like a beautiful cuisine learning about that from um there's other countries in the world you know in south america as well too and i think every 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 country in the world has their own sort of story of turning turning scraps or throwaway food into something beautiful yeah. i think learning more about that i learned how to own sort of my own experience and not be ashamed of it you know and i think um prior to that um and i, I blame this on culinary school <laughs> culinary school is very uh eurocentric mm-hmm. you know? and it taught me the wrongs to shame myself because the things that I like, they didn't, um, it, it wasn't prioritized in sort of European centralized cooking. Right. Um, and then you start to learn about colonialism and all this other stuff and, um, and it's kind of unravels itself. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's so true. I, um, so I did the, um, hospitality program at San Francisco city college. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember th- we were doing paella um, uh-huh. one day, and this was my first time, you know, yeah. seeing paella. I never ate paella before. Yeah. Um, but then I'm like looking at everything that he's putting in it. I'm like, I mean, this is like jambalaya. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm like, absolutely. this is jambalaya. This is exactly what this is. Absolutely. And, um, <laughs> I remember one of the chefs, he was like, he kind of like downplayed jambalaya like that's, you know, that's just like poor people's. And I was like, Fucking bullshit. Excuse me. Fucking bullshit. (laughs) Fucking bullshit. You know? So so this is the argument that I have with Europe. And I've I've gotten in a lot of trouble for this, is that people forget that after the fall of the Roman empires, that the North African Muslim Moors took over all of Europe. Like literally all of Europe, mm-hmm. but you know we don't read. I I didn't find that in any of the history books that I read in high school, uh, let alone middle school. In addition to that, to support your argument or your point, Madrid is a Muslim name with African roots, mm. period. right? Um, but you don't see any trace of Muslim there because the Crusades wiped out any African presence in Europe, period, especially yeah. Italy. Um, another thing is rice hereditarily, genetically, is from Africa, period. Mm-hmm. And anything that has to do with seafood or rice or any of that sort of stew has roots in West Africa. So that sort of like space, that's a weak argument that that chef person has. Yeah. You know, I was like, just like completely amazed. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, when you start, and really when you start looking at a lot of different dishes, like yeah. you look at jollof rice, it's very similar. And I'm like, <laughs> I was just completely blown away. See, the, the, the way I explain these things to other people who don't get it out of outside of our space is that mm-hmm. um, I call Picasso a fraud. Mm. That's, that's African art. That's absolutely African art. You know, and you can't tell me it's a fucking coincidence that multiple aspects of his art looks like rooted in African art. Yeah, <laughs> like, wow. You know, I never even looked at it that way. Now, yeah, but yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah, you should. Definitely absolutely see. should. Yeah. Now, uh, how do you describe your take on Vietnamese cuisine? I say that I cook Vietnamese diaspora cuisine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's very hard for me to cook anything authentic 
from that from that land or for that region because I don't have access to those ingredients. In addition to that, I don't exist in that community. And because I don't exist in that community, it would be very hard for me to represent appropriately. Mm. Um, do, do you know what Bryant Terry is? Yes. Um, he talks a lot about African diaspora. And I think about him talking about African diaspora kind of inspired me and influenced me and in about the way I talk about Vietnamese cuisine, you know? Um, and I really appreciate his, you know, he was talking about it like 15 years ago, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and I, I think I wanna be uh, very clear that his, his work has been an inspiration for myself on how I perceive um, not just food, but culture. Yeah. It's very, very important to me. And I, I want to accurately represent, um, I'm here in Oakland and the food that I cook is rooted here in Oakland. It just happens to be I'm of a Vietnamese lineage and heritage. And because I cook in Oakland, I have to make um, certain imp- improvisations mm-hmm. um, to cook that sort of food, but the palate is sort of the same. Yeah. And the same thing, it was the same thing with my mother. And you know, the way she cooked here is completely different the way she would cook back at home. It's because we just don't have the same ingredients. I think a great example would be, you know, um, uh, chayote, you know, the Spanish squash. You know, right. that's an ingredient that she learned how to cook here. Um, and, you know, she cook with, she cooks it with like fish sauce and scrambled eggs and stuff. That's mm-hmm. something you don't see at home. You don't. And another thing is, um, you know, we had a, um, Korean neighbor that spoke to Vietnamese. She was mm-hmm. full-blooded Korean. It just happens to be that she, her family business existed in Vietnam uh-huh. and taught my mom to cook a lot of Korean food. And she, my mom implements a lot of that Korean cooking, just genuinely so, because it's good, um, into her current, into her culinary repertoire. And yeah. I think it's my responsibility as a chef to acknowledge that and celebrate that and champion that. And mm-hmm. she's the matriarch or kitchen expert that I knew in my lifetime and it's excelled me to sort of the success if you will and um, that's the narrative that I'm really sticking to opposed to seeing a white chef on tv and being in awe with what he what 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 he or she represents um, which leads me to disowning what I represent so I'm trying to do the opposite so and you know I just want to well, you know, I'm going to go back to this. I'm going to go back to it. Yeah, please. <laughs> Can you describe a dish that is inspired by your mother, but you've taken into a different direction? Um, uh, if you watch, I, I'm super excited to announce that. Um, well, I, it released in February, but I just came out with a short film called Bloodline about my family, about my mother in particular, um, how she was a refugee and a seamstress. And between my mother and father, they taught me how to cook with the bloodline of fish. And if you go to any fine dining restaurant in the world, if you will, for I think 98% of chefs do this. They always, even Japanese sushi chefs, they, they would trim out the bloodline because it's too stinky. It's not, fra- you know, it's mm-hmm. not palatable. Um, my mother taught me how to cook with it. And even though she's not a heavily decorated chef, there's so- something of value that I learned from her. And I celebrate that. And in that film, it shows me taking that on the road, cooking it for people and people actually loving it. Oh, wow. And I really try to make sure that people understand that 
just to give you some sort of con uh, just just to give you some context when people approach me whether they're vietnamese or not they always say i love how you're elevating here goes my air quotes elevating vietnamese cuisine uh-huh and they always direct um the fact that i'm elevating cuisine which is excuse me which is by the way suggesting that what my mother cook and other females or other matriarchs in Vietnamese cooking is suggested that's food, that food's inferior, which mm-hmm. I never try, never in line one. Um, but they say that it must be because I work for these white French men, you know, or white Italian men that taught me all these cool things that people celebrate. That's why the food that I cook is delicious. And I always have to stop them in their tracks. And these are food writers other chefs, food critics, all alike. They all always tell me this. And I stopped them in the trash. I'm like, that's not from them. This is from, you know, matriarchs, Vietnamese matriarchs that you don't celebrate. Right. You know? Um, and I think uh, it, that sort of thinking, I think is in, has been so infectious. Um, it exists in both male and females alike of all different colors, um, Vietnamese people included. And, um, I think it kind of brings up the sort of conversation about self-shame, you know, and I think that exists a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the United States. Yeah. I mean, I almost hate that word elevated <laughs> because it's like, it, it suggests that the food, it was less than, and it wasn't, you know? Absolutely. And, um, yeah, it, it's basically saying that's that's even like when you start thinking about even how cookbooks were written or yeah. how recipes were taken, um, and then kind of uh, you kind of put the system to it. When like I learned how to cook by you know it's a pinch of this or a handful of that, and it's yeah. a little bit of this, and it's kind of looked at as something that's inferior. But there was a reason why you know a granny would say you need this type of egg and it needs to be this big or it needs to be right. right they were measuring it absolutely. just looked different absolutely and i love those grandmother recipes where it's like where they say you need to get like a chicken egg from february from the second week of february <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was going through my granny's had this recipe box and I was going through it. That's awesome. I found these recipes. It just had lists of ingredients and some of them had measurements but I was like shoot. So now I have this task. I want to just start cooking some stuff to find out because I have no idea what it's going to (laughs) be. That's awesome. You should absolutely like blog it in some shape or form or like put mm-hmm. it on social media so people can follow along with you. Yeah, because it's been it yeah, it's been interesting just kind of going through her recipes. And then my other grandmother, um, uh-huh. she made these things called butter rolls. And I actually never had an opportunity. What is a butter roll? So Okay, so it's called butter rolls, yeah. which I learned. It totally. has to have an S at the end because if it's just a butter roll, it looks a little bit different. <laughs> um, or it's a butter roll, not butter rolls. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I, I've been calling around to different family members to see if anybody has this recipe. And I swear, nobody paid attention 
when she was doing this recipe. I don't know <laughs> oh. what And so I've been talking to different people so they can kind of like describe to me what it is and so what I've kind of come to the conclusion it's almost it's like a cross between a biscuit and like a cinnamon roll wow that's super dope so you know I do I have to say this because I know you brought it up and I know folks some folks may know some may not but your time on television because in my eyes you're a superstar (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You are a superstar. I have a star in my presence. But tell folks what you were on and kind of like, what has that, what has that done for your career? And like, what are some of the lessons that you've been able to teach other people through that opportunity? That's a great question. Um, So for everybody, um, my name is Tu David Fu. Um, I was on Top Chef season 15, and I think I did okay. And then since being on the show, I think it's been just an honor. That show doesn't just air in the United States, but it, it airs worldwide. So the exposure and the um, the exposure and the opportunity to sort of um, tell my story. Uh, about who I am and what I represent and what I'm trying to do for the world. It, it didn't just give growth to my career, but it gave growth for me um, for opportunities in, 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 in all shapes, sizes, and forms. And I, I wouldn't even know where to start. Um, and just to give a little bit further background about what I do and how I exist, um, I started doing uh, pop-up, which are underground dinners back in 2014, 2015, and it was just, it was based here in Oakland and San Francisco. Um, We would put on um, 80s and 90s R&B hip hop. It was a sort of like an informal party, if you will, Mm -hmm. but an attachment to that, we would have um, a tasting menu, which was like anywhere from six to eight courses and then wine. And we kept it super accessible. Wine and food um, during that time, for a couple, it'd be like 200 bucks. So it's like a hundred bucks a person. Um, and it would be like in these very super exclusive, like whether it's a penthouse or a loft or like behind a restaurant or even like in a undisclosed warehouse somewhere, which made it super, super cool. And I think from that, um, food critics started to notice, I got Rising Star Chef in 2017 and then onto Top Chef and not never in a million years would I think cooking at an underground dinner would sort of skyrocket me to those sort of opportunities. And then because of Top Chef, um, I just released a film on PBS, KQED locally um, as a media company partner um, and a a co-executive producer. And moving forward, I'm creating a bunch of digital content in the food space. And I uh, develop products for like food companies and stuff like that. And I kind of exist sort of in a product development space. So yeah, I I think what I'm doing is like sort of very niche and it's, it's, it's very non-traditional from what other chefs do, but I'm, I'm having a blast doing it. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. That's amazing. I'm love to hear that. Now, it's just kind of like beyond the plate because um, 
there was one interview, I think it was with the foodie chap. It was a, an IG live that I, that you all were doing. Yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned was about combating homelessness. Absolutely. And yeah. That was something that came up for you, like just not necessarily during the pandemic, but maybe you had more of an opportunity to think about like, where exactly do you fit in? And so, you know, that's what I wanted to hear a little bit more, just explore a little bit more um, about what you have been thinking about your role is in that, because of course you have this huge role in food and um, kind of this responsibility in food, but I thought it was inspiring to see that you were thinking beyond that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I, I think the way I look at um, society, if you will, is that for those who are more privileged, um, I'm sorry, excuse me. Uh, in terms of society, for those who are more privileged, you have to budget yourself to give back. And uh, I'm not just talking about, um, I'm not talking about, I just want to be very clear. I'm not talking about um, um um, ethnic privileges, if you will, or even white, white privilege. I'm just talking about if you have privilege in any regard, um, whether it's financial success, career success, um, in, in any aspect, I think we all have a responsibility to budget in things in our lives to help our community and help our society. Um, and just know those formulas are different. And I, I really do think, and I'm convinced that it's a fact that the lighter your skin is, the scale of your privilege goes a little bit further higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you talk about financial and your skin is lighter, it goes up even higher. And that's just a fact. Um, so I'm not disregarding that by any means, but even though I fit somewhere down here, because <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not Jay-Z or Beyonce, <laughs> <laughs> even though my privilege kind of level fits beyond here, I feel a strong commitment and a responsibility to heal my community wherever wherever I can, you know, and um, um, I think sort of my concerns across the board is obviously um, social injustices and that's BPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, um, LGBTQ rights. Um, and I think another underlining thing is homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that category, those categories sort of combined, I think if you look at in terms of society, um, those are the most vulnerable groups. And I think a great measure of society is not how much money we make or how great our careers are, or if you were in Top Chef or not. I, I really think it's the work that you do to take care of the vulnerable. Yeah. Um, so I, I think uh, on that IG Live, I think that was floating in my mind in that sort of moment, specifically for that week, because um, uh, I think there was an encampment in East Oakland that got burned down and there was a bunch mm. of homeless people who weren't able to get food. Oh, and I think the way our emotion works and especially with social media, the following week, it's another issue. It's, it's hate in the Asian community crime. And then it's another issue where it's an innocent you know, innocent young young black woman being tased for no reason. You know, mm-hmm. um, and, and it just keeps on going forth. I think there was a, a Filipino um, Navy vet that got killed the week after that, 
um, by a police officer and was purely innocent. So like, it's, 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 of course it's contextual, but it's, it's, I'm struggling on how to prioritize all those things, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it's unfair to mention one, but not the other. But right. I think as of 2021, I, I, I don't know, but I, I think I try to deal thing, deal with things and support on what's in front of me. Cause that's all I can handle, you know? Yeah. So. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for saying that because, you know, it's so easy to, you know, just put people in a box without realizing, you know, we are multidimensional people. Absolutely. um, Multi-hyphenated people, many of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, and there's so many different intersections um, in our lives. And so we can't just look at one thing. Absolutely. Without looking at another, right? You have to look at things holistically. Absolutely. And we just look at things holistically and, and, and be human about it. Have compassion. Exactly. And I, and I think I see the opposite happening right now where people are so comfortable in their circles and bubbles is that they lose their compassion to hold on to what they have. Yeah. You know, like, like, and I think that's a hard balance. And I think I see that being the norm right now mm-hmm. where, I think it's a very common conversation. Of course, times are financially difficult, but like there's there's those conversations where, you know, I got to worry about minds before I worry about anybody else. And it's that ongoing sort of thought where it really pulls us away from community. I mean, I, I grew up in Oakland and even though in the 90s it was hard or whatnot, but like we, we had this sense of community at least, you know, where, you know, if, if the police, the OPD wasn't going to take care of us or the government at the time was going to take care of us, at least there was a community where we kind of, kind of relied on helped each other, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I think we're, losing, we're really losing that. We're really losing that, you know? Yeah. So. so kind of keeping in that line with community and, and you've talked a lot about your mom and just kind of the maternal influence. Yeah. What's some sage advice an elder has given you? That's a great question. Oh my God. <laughs> you're, you're hitting me right here, you know? Like, so I, I think I want to make it very clear that the whole sort of sort of notion of being self-made is complete bullshit. Mm. I just want to make it clear. That's not what it says on my knuckles or hands, you know? Right. Gets, <laughs> none of that, you know? Um, I'm not August, August Alcina where I have it on my... Uh, <laughs> One of those vibes and he's too young to even understand but I, I don't believe in the notion of being self-made i really believe in the, the sort of old saying that it takes a village and community to raise a child and i think that's a big part of my success uh give some credit absolutely some a huge credit to my parents for raising me but in addition to that my successes have been the community abroad whether it's uh, a former employer that took me under their wing or my teachers or my after school program leaders if you will that would provide me safe spaces um, or the library or even um, or even these clubs that I would check into would teach me things that teach you, teaches me access to give me access to different things. Um, I think one main employer that I'm very, um, that I love wholeheartedly and dearly is that um, I worked for a place called Saul's Deli in North Berkeley. Yes. The owners are Peter and Karen. Uh Uh-huh. They took me under their wing. Uh, I think at that time I was in my early 20s, just came out of culinary school, wanted to learn more about operations and managerial stuff, you know, so I was like a low-end manager, if you will. 
Um, and I think in that moment, at that time in my life, I was, um, I couldn't, I didn't know how to speak. I didn't know how to write. I didn't go to college. You know, I, I wrote, and sp- I wrote and spoke at a, probably like at a ninth or 10th grade level. Mm. Um, not trying to diss my school. I went to Oakland Tech, <laughs> class 2003, but it's, it just wasn't there for me when yeah. I spoke in that sort in like a, as a leader in the professional space, what have you. So they took it upon themselves to, in, in addition to that, um, my people skills was lacking, you know, leadership, communication, speak. So they took upon themselves and invested their own dollars to, um, uh, to teach me managerial skills and learn people skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to that, it took me to Toastmasters so I could learn how to speak in public. Wow. You know, and I'm, I have no connection. I don't look like them. I, I, I have no Jewish diaspora that I know of in my roots at all. And it's because they extended out to me and, and offer this, this 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 great opportunity on their on their dime on their dollar, you know, um, for me to empower myself. I think that that was such a game changer for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in moments like that, which I've had multiple, where I just see the power of mentorship, whether. I'm participating in a nonprofit program or a nonprofit event, working with youth, working with incarcerated men. I see so much value, whether it's a week, a month, or day, or a year, or even five minutes where I'm checking with somebody and telling them you are special. There's something valuable in you as long as you put, as long as you invest your efforts in X, Y, and Z way. There, you can make yourself better. You know, like that. That to me has has been so. Um, um, infectious in the in the most positive ways for me. So. Yeah, I mean you're so correct and a yeah. testament that it does take a village. It does it take. It takes community. I mean, we need community. We need each other. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I think uh, I think I work with a lot of um, um, a lot of men and young men. Mm-hmm. And there's always this ongoing conversation about masculinity and how that's poisonous. But I, I think when you lack mentorship, and I only speak about men because that's that's the space that I floated in. Yeah. Um, but when you lack um, mentorship and nourishment from your community, from your family, from your friends, or whatever space you exist in, I feel that a lot of men will default to masculinity. And I think masculinity is the most poisonous shit out there mm. that is teaching men how to act, how to conduct themselves with business, in crime, with other women, um, in life, at the career places. So I, I think that's a bigger conversation. Yeah. I just wanted to see that there because I think that's an important statement to make. It, it is. Yeah. Thank you for stating it. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I, I think I'm really passionate about speaking with my other counter uh, male counterparts to talk about masculinity and removing that, being vulnerable, and having these sort of conversations. As that there's no value. I don't think there's any value, you know, to being more masculine than the next guy. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's interesting, even thinking about the food space. And I think, I mean, 
one of the reasons why I was like, I actually don't want to work in the kitchen anymore. I don't want to go this direction um, is because there was a lot of toxicity. In, Absolutely. In I, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you a thousand percent. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so it's even been, it's been interesting because like, you know, when the uprisings happened last summer, there, there was a lot of, you know, the, some racial things that are happening within the food space, right? Which, I mean, many of us already know it was there. It didn't just pop up, but they were starting to get highlighted more. And even with just kind of the sexism that was happening in Mm -hmm. the food space, I started seeing that a lot of that was being lifted up, especially when it came to Black women being in the food space. Absolutely. really just calling people out on it and so good i i i i co-sign the cancel culture because it gives people who don't have voice a voice and i don't know why there's people out there like i don't like the cancel culture i feel like when people are afraid of the cancel culture they're guilty of something and they're afraid that they're going to get called out yeah and some people need to be canceled (laughs) some people need to be canceled absolutely just straight up you know absolutely absolutely a lot of folks been getting passes for a long time. I think there was a, um, I think uh, I was on Clubhouse and there was this whole talk because my my other friends were in there mm-hmm. and they just kind of pulled me in, but there was a conversation over speculation about Kim Kardashian and Kanye West breakup. You remember when that happened? Yeah. And there, there were people in there, just hardcore fans saying like, I don't appreciate this cancel culture. I'm like, <laughs> what are they teaching your children? You know, like, what are they teaching your children on what's okay and what's not okay? You know, yeah. so I I don't know. I don't want to go. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. That's a whole nother rabbit hole. Let's keep yeah, it. Because that'll take us, man. Yeah, <laughs> we'll be talking for days. Right, right. I'm gonna change it up just a little bit, just a little bit. Like you, you uh, need to be, you need, you need to be, you need to be celebrating Obama, Michelle more, more and less Kim Kardashian. Like seriously, oh like let's talk about role models. Like yeah, please. yeah, we please. definitely put. Like people you would think would be put on a pedestal. Let's just even say a teacher. (laughs) You know, there's absolutely no way I could be a teacher as far as like, I'm going into a classroom um, every day dealing with kids. That takes a lot. Absolutely. We don't put the right people on those pedestals. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, 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 the system, I'm, I'm hoping that the system will get rebuilt in the coming decades with mm-hmm. the right representation. And I feel like it's already going that sort of way. I'm looking more for it's like the sort of AOC sort of representation with mm-hmm. senators and hopefully the house and continuing going in that direction, you know? Yeah. So, but we'll see, we'll see. We, yeah. we shall, we shall. I mean, you know, there's hope on the horizon. So let's see how this goes. So changing it up just a touch. Yep because I like to know what's going on with people at home. So (laughs) what is your guilty food pleasure? Guilty food. I love hot dogs. I love, Ah. I love, and you know, I I have this debate all the time. I love a Costco hot dog. You know why? Because it's a buck 50. Costco hot dogs are good. Yeah. It's because it's a buck 50 and it comes with a soda. (laughs) Um, I think more, more, more than luxur- luxurious food, I'm really passionate about accessible foods, mm. you know, mm-hmm. foods that are inclusive, because that's how I grew up. 
Um, don't get me wrong, I can make like a really nice meal, but I'm, I'm really more passionate about um, about people being able to afford food. So I think that's one of the weird sort of interesting reasons why I like the Costco hot dog. Uh -huh. Because not that it's not that it's the most delicious thing I ever taste, but it's it's nostalgic. For, it's nostalgic for me. It really is. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, it it makes me think of my mom and going to Costco <laughs> and also getting those little samples. That, right? was, like, that was my jam. I wanted to go get those samples. There's the dark other dark side of Costco as well. We're <laughs> overindulged in bulk. That's 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 a whole. I don't co-sign on that. That's a whole other story. So. <laughs> Okay, now, what are the five things that you have to have in your kitchen? They're your must-haves. You got to have it. Uh, ingredients or, or, or cookware? Oh, I don't, well, I was thinking ingredients, but now I want to know what cookware you have, too. So let's start with ingredients. What are your five ingredients that you have to have in the kitchen? Um, I have to have fish sauce because my family's been making fish sauce ever since 1895. So that's, that's wow. deep. Um. I have to have um, tea, coffee. I'm real basic. Coffee, tea, fish sauce. Uh, coffee, tea, coffee, tea, fish sauce. Um, um, some sort of fresh noodle. I love eating noodles. Mm -hmm. um, what type of noodle, whether it's soba, egg noodle, or rice noodle. And I think the last thing would be is um, orange juice. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. <laughs> you know like all the other stuff in terms of food it's like of course I enjoy cooking it's work to me but those are like my daily essentials that I need to have yeah make me feel whole which is okay. like the basic thing ever right it is I mean like very basic like anybody could have that okay <laughs> I like it I like it though now let me did I read somewhere that your family your family makes fish sauce and sells it right yeah, but the only seller, it's it's maternal. It's on my mom's side. And okay. They only sell it in Asia, um, in, including Japan, and then I think France and some other, a few other European countries. Oh, wow. um, so I think in terms of like the fish sauce market, they're a little bit smaller. Mm -hmm. uh, they have they tried to bring it to here to the states. I think in the late nineties, but that didn't go over so well. And. Um, I think uh, I've tried to convince them to do it. It's just, I've been unsuccessful. Mm. That's like family, politics and all that stuff. So I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So I think at the moment I'm working with a very extremely reputable fish sauce brand named Sunfish Sauce. And I think their their quality is just as good as my family's quality. Okay. Um, and I have that on my website at tomamispices.com. It's a platform that highlights uh, artisanal Asian producers um, both domestically and both international. Um, and it's stuff that are single origin, um, uh, organic wherever possible and, um, ethical. The underlying thing is ethical, mm -hmm. um, properly sourced. So. Right on. Thank you for that. Cause I was going to ask, how do we get it? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a project that get, came out of birth, um, during the pandemic and mm. it was just from my working relationship with Whole Foods, I, I, I started to see that it was a, a little bit harder for small producers, especially getting off their feet to be able to sell their products. So that was my way of adding a 
sort of a, a new alternative for small producers to kind of get highlighted um, by a direct-to-consumer online. So. Mm, awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. Now, because this is important to me. Please, yeah. Music is important in my life. Absolutely. <laughs> so I need you to give me a beat. What is on rotation right now? Or what's your kitchen playlist? Um, I'm a big Tony, Tony, Tony fan. Okay, I, okay. Rafael Sadiq. Um, um, what else? Um, we just got married, so I'm playing a lot of Jagged Edge, Let's Get Married, both the party version and the r and How long ago was it that you all got married? Um, I, last week, we got legally married um, by a virtual ceremony, and in our oh. actual celebration ceremony, we've delayed it to... Um, hopefully, understandably so, until 2022. Uh, oh, February. wow. So, yeah, super excited. Um, thank you. Um, I, uh, Mint Condition, I love Mint Condition, even though I only have like two or three tracks. Um, I'm a big 90s R&B sort of dude. I was about to say, you are a 90s dude. Um, my, I think my most played track for 2020 on Spotify was um, Whitney Houston. Mm. Yeah, so I'm a big Whitney Houston fan. Uh, I, I may be all tatted up. I stand 6'2", tatted up, like 200 <laughs> plus pounds, but I'm, I'm really a big softy. I, lo I love the slow jams, you know? I love it. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. And yeah, did you say Let's Get Married, the remix? Yeah, the remix. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, That beat, that beat, I think that beat is going viral on TikTok, you know, because that beat- Is it? Know, yeah, because you know in the beginning how the beat drops goes boom, 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 right? So people are using that TikTok. So um, they're doing things like slapping the screen and everything. Yeah, okay. So yeah, I mean that was we had it played at our wedding too. That's like a month. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's the anthem, right? It's, yeah. It's the anthem, so. Like if you don't play that, you know. Absolutely. It's not right. Okay, and so last question for you. Mm -hmm. If you could have dinner with blank, who would that be? And what would the dinner be and why? Um, I, I think there'd be two people, two, two people that I would love to have. And, and we're talking about celebrities, right? Not family members or either or. It could be anybody. Um, it's up to you. I'm a huge, huge Tupac fan, like huge mm. Tupac fan. I really love Tupac. Um, so I would sit down and have dinner with him and pick his brain. Um, in, in addition to that, um, um, I, I aspire to be um, conscious the way uh, James Baldwin was. Mm -hmm. um, I really love James Baldwin. Um, Robert Kennedy is another one. There, there's so many people. I, I would love to um, sit down and have dinner with um, just, just, ah. Princess Diana. It's hard. It's hard to just pick one person, huh? Yeah. Princess Diana. Um, who, who else would I want to have sit and dinner to uh, talk to? Um, I don't know. I, I think those are like my top five, probably. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I think the, the, the probably the top would be for sure Tupac. I, I really appreciate Tupac and the way his mind existed. Mm. Um, and I think the way he. I've been inspired by him is that even though he was sort of confined to just music, he found a creative space to celebrate the arts in all of its different forms, whether he was an MC rapper, poet, actor, producer, 
um, and how that all tied into his sort of efforts to doing community and work towards um, embettering his, uh, I'm sorry, let me rephrase, all, all that sort of work kind of tied into embettering his own community. Mm -hmm. I thought that was, for me, I, I didn't see that exist before anyone else, um, before Tupac. I could be wrong, but I just, I saw that first with Tupac and I think that's such a beautiful thing. Yeah, he was special. He oh, was really special, definitely. Absolutely. absolutely. And what would that dinner be? What would what would it consist of? Um, I'm sure Tupac had pho before. I would cook Tupac a bomb and a of pho, and he would love it. Yeah, he would love it. <laughs> yes, and I know that's the dish that you shared with me, absolutely. and I can't wait to try the recipe because this will be my first time making pho. You can text me in real time, all that stuff. Just let me okay. know. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll walk you a through. A lot this. of it, but have not made it. So uh -huh. I have, I have a, I have a beef version too. That's uh, Instapot that makes it easier as well too. So there's beef and chicken, whatever you prefer. I wanna, I wanna try it, the real deal. Okay. Wait. <laughs> they're both, they're both real deals. It's okay. Just, um, I, I think chicken is more of a more of a recent thing in the like the 80s and 90s of of, of vietnam di of vietnamese diaspora and that beef i think beef is more traditional if you will mm -hmm. um but they're both as delicious and okay. they've been both been around for like quite a few decades now yeah. it's, it's people regardless yeah and i'm super excited about trying it and why did you choose that recipe i think it's one of those things where when people think about vietnamese cuisine they 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 see they they identify with that dish no matter where you come from, especially if you live here in the United States. Actually, internationally, I think I've met people in France like oh, when I say I'm Vietnamese, I love pho, or people in like you know Mexico where they're like oh Vietnamese, I love pho, like mm -hmm. sort of been sort of like a pop culture sensation, if you will. But the reason why I pick that I pick pho is because there's so much historical context in there. Um, it involves war, and it talks about diaspora. It, it talks about all these. It talks about colonialism. Um, I really love that dish, not only because it tastes good, but there's so much historical context where if people just looked at that dish, they'll they'll get a a slight understanding or summary if you feel or a summary if you a summary if they look at that dish, they'll get a good understanding of uh, Vietnamese history just in that dish alone. So I thought it'd be a great introductory dish. Awesome. So thank, thank you. you. Well, that is it. Awesome. That was awesome. That was a great talk. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thank you. <laughs> this was like, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. Likewise. I think the absolutely the, uh, the spirit and vibes are absolutely aligned. And um, I'm just always honored for a person like yourself to hear my story and learn more about who I am. So very appreciative. Thanks for listening to Savor and Sage Unplugged. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and to stay up to date, head over to savorandsage.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast and thank you for all of your DMs, emails, all those shouts of encouragement. Stay tuned for the next episode, which drops next Sunday.